0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It's been two months since a jury deadlocked on bribery charges against Senator Robert Menendez. The New Jersey Democrat was emotional as he exited the courthouse last November.
1: To those who left me, who abandoned me in my darkest moment, I forgive you. To those who embraced me in my darkest
2: moment, I love you. To those New Jerseyans who gave me the benefit of the doubt,
1: I thank you.
0: After nearly three months of trial, jurors said they were deadlocked 10 to 2 in favor of acquitting Menendez and the doctor accused of bribing him. But the Justice Department announced it intends to retry him at the earliest possible date. My guest is Robert Mintz, head of the white collar and criminal investigations practice at McCarter and English and a former federal prosecutor. Bob, juror Edward Norris said there was no smoking gun in the case, and despite thousands of documents and almost 100 Witnesses, he said, in my gut, I was like, that was it. That's all they had. So 10 jurors bought the defense case. Are you surprised the prosecution is deciding to retry?
1: No, I'm not really surprised that the prosecution is taking another run at this because typically the Department of Justice will retry cases that end in a hung jury. Uh, Absent some major collapse of a key witness or some evidence that uh, is not available in the second trial, they will usually try the case at least one more time to see if they can convince a different jury to get a conviction.
0: Do retrials favor the prosecution?
1: Well, they really advantage both sides to some extent. Uh, both sides, at this point, have shown their hands. The government knows what the defense is going to present, and the. And the defense knows how the government's going to present its case, and both sides really have an opportunity to change their tactics slightly. So I think we can see from the government an opportunity to streamline their presentation and keep it more focused, but ultimately, prosecutors have the the higher mountain to climb here because they've got to convince all 12 jurors that the relationship between Senator Menendez and Dr. Melgan was more of a corrupt bargain than a true friendship.
0: Tell me about the McDonald case and which is a Supreme Court case and how it affects this bribery conviction this bribery prosecution.
1: Sure, the Supreme Court case uh, of McDonald refers uh, to a case involving uh, former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald. And in that case, the Supreme Court reined in prosecutors by ruling that the government had to show a direct line between gifts and official acts, and the official acts had to be something more than merely arranging a meeting. In other words, some official action had to be taken or influenced. So in this case, there were actions that were taken by Senator Menendez and there were gifts or things of value that were given by Dr. Melgan to Senator Menendez. And what prosecutors have to do is to draw that direct line between the gifts and the official actions and try to convince jurors that the official actions were only taken in exchange for the gifts.
0: Now, that particular Supreme Court ruling has really tripped up a lot of prosecutions, hasn't it?
1: it has certainly made it more difficult for the government to prove these political corruption cases because they have to show that direct tie and in this case it's going to be particularly challenging because prosecutors aren't even alleging the classic quid pro quo arrangement in other words prosecutors are not even arguing to the jury that there was money that was given in exchange in exchange for a particular action instead they've adopted a more controversial and less-tested legal theory that's described as the stream-of-benefits theory of prosecution. And essentially, what prosecutors are saying is that Menendez received a stream of gifts from Dr. Melgan with the unspoken understanding that Senator Menendez would be available to take action for Dr. Melgan's benefit at some point in the future.
0: Bob Menendez will have to defend himself most likely in a year when he's up for re-election. How will that play into what happens in the in the courtroom?
1: Well, the case was a high-profile case the first time around, and it's going to be even more high-profile the second time around, given the re-election, which will be now much more close in time to the trial. So I think we're going to see both sides going all out. Retrials ratchet up the pressure on both sides, and both sides are going to have to try to figure out a strategy to ensure that they win.
0: The prosecutors made a motion to preclude improper arguments that was very interesting. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, the government filed a preemptive motion last week to prevent the defense from what they claim were improper attempts to influence the jury using racial and ethnic references. So they claim in their motion, for example, that uh, the defense had lined the hallway every morning where jurors walked in and out with supporters of Senator Menendez, and that there were clergy there who were leading prayers, and that there were references throughout the trial to Senator Menendez's uh, ethnic background as a Hispanic senator, um, and the government believes that that was improper, and what they're trying to do is condition the judge the second time around, to try to make sure that some of what they perceive to be improper influence is excluded from the second trial.
0: So now, suppose that you're the prosecutor trying this again, and you know that you came up with a 10, 10 jurors, only two jurors who were on your side in the first trial. You only have the facts that you have. What, do you, what can you do to really reshape your case?
1: Well, it's difficult, to be honest, they don't have an insider the way these cases often do where you've got a member of the conspiracy who can explain what went on so so that they don't have what is basically just a circumstantial case. They don't have that here, so they have to go with the evidence they have. And I think they have to try to deal with this friendship defense more directly because that is something that I think ultimately tripped them up during the first trial. They also have to try to shorten their case because it went on too long, I think most observers believe. And when the case goes on for too long, generally that tends to help the defense and hurt the prosecution.
0: So how do you – the prosecution the first time around showed all kinds of pictures of of them and what, what happened and the the luxurious suites and all that. Do you think you'd eliminate those?
1: Well, I don't think you can eliminate them altogether because it's a bit of a two-edged sword. I think what the prosecution was trying to argue was that the very lavish nature of these gifts suggested it was more than friendship, um, that you don't typically have friends, even even good friends, who pay for hotel stays in a Paris hotel of more than $5,000 who provide all these uh, flights on private jets and commercial jets, um, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, if you go too far, I think it can backfire. And at least some of the jurors' comments after the first trial suggested that they felt like the government was asking for a conviction merely because of the lavish nature of the gifts without proving that there was this connection.
0: Time goes quickly. Thanks, Bob. That's Bob Manza, partner at McCarter in English. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been a hardcore opponent of states' legalization of marijuana, which is illegal under federal law.
2: I've never felt that we should legalize marijuana. I think it doesn't strike me that the country would be better if it's being sold at every street corner.
0: But this month, Sessions doubled down, rescinding the Obama-era policy that kept federal authorities from cracking down on the marijuana trade in states where the drug is legal and leaving it up to U.S. attorneys to decide whether to enforce the federal law in their states. I spoke to former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley, who's now a partner at Foley Hoag. Attorney General, the U.S. Attorney from Massachusetts has refused to rule out prosecutions against state-licensed marijuana growers and manufacturers. Yet the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission announced that it will move ahead with recreational licensing with the goal of issuing licenses in July. Is full speed ahead wise with the uncertainty now surrounding the conflict between state and federal law? I
2: think to take a little step back and look at how long Massachusetts has been in this process. Remember that there's been a movement for a long time to legalize medical marijuana, which happened in Massachusetts, which was overseen and implemented not as smoothly as it might have been. But I think lessons learned from that, when there was a popular vote to go forward with recreational marijuana, I think many people in the state, even those who opposed it, recognized that this was where the future was. This is what Massachusetts had decided. And so setting up what appears to be A very thoughtful, hardworking commission, making sure that they're getting input as to how they regulate this so that it will be fair, but it also will be safe, I think says that Massachusetts is really committed to moving forward on this. Keep in mind, there's always been this uncertainty about what a federal government would or wouldn't do under the Obama administration. Those memos gave some comfort to folks, but they really shouldn't have forgotten that the federal statutes actually will have to be changed. This is a reminder that unless and until Congress makes some changes, there's always the issue of federal jurisdiction over this. I think that there have been some concerns, of course, with what General Sessions has done. As far as Massachusetts goes, I think the current U.S. attorney is... He's new in the job. I think he has said, look, I am going to look at things case by case. I'm going to use my resources. And since that time, I think there's been some sense among commentators that this is um, someone who's a professional, that it's not going to be a political issue for him, that he's going to run the office professionally. And I think as the governor and the attorney general and others here in Massachusetts have said, we're going to back the legalizing of marijuana. That's what voters wanted. We want to make sure it's safe and it's regulated. You know, I think that people are going to watch very closely to what the new U.S. Attorney not only says, but what he does. But I think there is a growing sense that, in light of the public support for this, the regulation in place, um, I think people know there's always uncertainty here, but that it's less and less likely that unless there is illegal activity, even under state law, whether it's money laundering or something that even violates state law, you know, I think the history of that office and what this U.S. attorney says, I think, makes it less likely that there will be, you know, enforcement at the federal level, something that nobody locally wants to happen by and large. Sessions has given U.S. attorneys discretion to do that. I know there were U.S. attorneys who have spoken more forcefully about not going forward on these cases, but I think this U.S. attorney has pretty much signaled that he wants to keep his options open, but he, he will be guided by what the resources of his office are in looking at things on a case-by-case basis.
0: And yet some medical marijuana businesses that are already licensed have done away with using credit cards. They have cash-only transactions so there won't be a record occurred. And there are some fears, some investors supposedly taking a step back.
2: Yes. And I think that was inevitable with the Sessions recall of those memos and giving both discretion to individual U.S. attorneys and some of the comments that the office in Boston has made. But again, that uncertainty has always been in the background. And so there are some steps that have been made, and, of course, the big issue is really and always has been for Colorado initially and for other states, what about handling the money? But I do think as Massachusetts wants to proceed with this, and there's a great effort on the ground level here, even, again, by former opponents of legalizing marijuana saying – You know, this ship has sailed. We are going to make this work in Massachusetts. And so I think you'll see some investors be skittish naturally, but I still think that this will proceed and people will be watching the U.S. Attorney's Office closely, not just for what it says, but what it does.
0: Turning to another subject privacy in this digital era is in the headlines all the time. The Supreme Court hinted in oral arguments in November that it may curb the power of law enforcement officials to track people using mobile phone data. At the end of last year, the Massachusetts legislature refused to update the state's wiretap law to give prosecutors broader powers to conduct wiretaps. You, like the governor and Massachusetts district attorneys, support changing the law. Why? I think the
2: effort recently in Massachusetts, at least from my point of view, is to try, while maintaining privacy and keeping the safeguards, it's still got to be judicially approved. It still has to Come under supervision of the courts, and that it would be time to update the Massachusetts statutes so that district attorneys and the Attorney General could deal with what we see as the new reality of street organized crime that's lucrative, that is dealing in violence, that's dealing in guns and drugs and human trafficking, and it's very difficult to break up or to bring to accountability without the use of judicially overseen wiretaps. There's a great resistance to that, I think, still in Massachusetts. And that's historically, I understand that, you know, we are a state that values the privacy of our citizens. And so this is always the discussion that law enforcement has with others in the state about how we keep people safe and how we protect individuals' privacy.
0: Is it likely that the legislature will update the wiretap law anytime soon? I don't see
2: that happening in the near future, and, and certainly this discussion about criminal, you know, judicially overseen wiretaps and privacy, of course, is much more widespread in, in the other sector in terms of civil law. What, what kind of privacy is due to individuals who keep their emails and keep their information in the cloud, for instance? And as we have these debates about how do you protect privacy and confidentiality in the digital age, in some ways, the criminal justice issues have taken a little bit of a backseat, I think, to that discussion.
0: That's former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley, now our partner at Foley Hoag. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.